when I was in high school, I worked at a recreation complex that was owned by our church called Buckhead Creek Recreation Complex. It was about a 40-acre facility that had baseball fields, soccer fields, the, the whole nine yards, right? And, and all throughout high school, mostly in the summers, but even some through the school year, I worked three or four years there. And uh, I worked there with one of my best friends in the world, still one of my best friends to this day, named Matt. And Matt and I, we, we, our supervisors began to realize when he and I worked together, productivity suffered quite a bit. Um, you're given 16-year-olds golf carts and four-wheelers, what could go wrong? And so they began to realize, like, hey, I, this ain't working, brother. And so they put us on shifts where I would take the morning, I'd get there about 7 in the morning or so in the summers, and then Matt would come in after lunch, and we have a little bit of crossover, but we just had to be separated because uh, that was just how it was going to be. That was the efficiency state. It was just, that was how it needed to be, right? So uh, whenever we would get there, we would be given our assignments for the day. And it could be anything. We didn't really know what we were getting into, but it could be anything from just mowing the, the fields to uh, doing some of the ground maintenance to, you know, washing the vehicles to doing whatever it is that needed to be done. But the worst job that you could get was to be on a weed eater. That thing weighed 600 pounds. It's back-breaking work, right? Every day that I weed-eated, used a line trimmer, uh, it was 130 degrees. Like, it was just miserable, right? And, and I just remember the, the worst possible job that you could get with the weed-eater at Buckhead Creek was to have to weed-eat the creek. About a quarter-mile-long creek that ran right through the middle of the complex, about four and a half, five feet deep, and you had to get down in there in the waders and just, just go up one side and down the other and back the other way. And, and I just remember, I'll be honest with you, driving to work some mornings in the summer, just promising God all kinds of things as long as I didn't have to do the creek that day. I should be a missionary in Africa right now um, because I, I just was making deals, right? I'm just doubling my tithe. I'll do what I'll break up with that girl, whatever I got to do, right? To, to not have to handle the creek that day. Well, there's one day that I walked into the, the shop and I heard the words that made me realize God was done with my empty promises. Because I heard, as soon as I walked in, I heard, grab your weed eater. It's like, oh boy. And my boss, Shannon, began to list a lot of the different things I had to do, the different places I had to go. And then at the end, he said, and if you have time, go ahead and hit the creek before you leave. <laughs> if I have time. <laughs> that day, I became the slowest weed eater in the history of the world. I mean, I, I took about 10 breaks, uh, went to the restroom 15 times. I, there was one time that I accidentally spilled the gas out of my weed eater, so I had to go back to the shop and refuel, right? Because I was doing all that I could to not have to do the creek. And so I, I finally get to this place where I'm done with all my other assignments, and I'm, I'm not, I don't think I have enough time to really start the creek, and so I just decide, hey, I'm just going to go back to the shop, tidy up around there until the end of my shift, and leave it for Matt, because I am the best friend you could have. And so I get back to the shop, and I'm just tidying up, which I don't really know what that looked like, and then here comes Shannon around the corner, and he says, what are you doing? I'm panicking, right? I'm like, I... I, I, I got all my other stuff done. The bathrooms are clean, I, I promise. Like all this different stuff, right? I, I thought I'd come back here, leave the creek for Matt. And I found myself on the business end of a stair that changed the way I saw the world. But he didn't say a word. He just walked over to where we do our timesheets. And I, he started filling something out. And I was like, am I getting fired for this? Like, I, I love this job. What is, what's... So he walks over with this sheet and he hands it to me. It wasn't my timesheet. It was his timesheet. I said, 
what, what do I do with this? He said, I figured I'd get you to sign it because apparently you're in charge around here. <clears throat> By the end of that day, the creek had never looked better. I wonder if you have been there before, right, where there's a responsibility in your life or in a context in which you are where uh, there's something that nobody really wants to do. That there's a chore maybe at the house, and my house is dishes. I'll just go ahead and be honest. We're in the trust tree this morning. It's dishes. We just kind of turn a blind eye to the sink sometimes. Maybe it's something at work. There's a gray matter that you're not really sure who cleans the coffee pot or who turns the lights off or, or who has the vacuum at the end of the day. Or There's something in your family that you just, there's that one thing that people just uh, don't really know that I, I, I want to do that. Maybe I'll leave that for somebody else. And ultimately, this chore, this task, this responsibility goes undone because ultimately, nobody wanted to do it. And everybody thought somebody else would take care of it. Psychologists refer to this as the bystander effect. The bystander effect is a psychological term that defines what happens in a situation where uh, there, there is a person or a, a, a situation that, that requires attention or help in the presence of a lot of people. And the statistics show that people are less likely to take action to bring help or to give attention when there are theoretically other people that could do it. That is, when other people are around, I'm not going to take ownership or leadership, statistically speaking, because there are other options. Somebody else surely will do it. Everybody's job becomes nobody's job. And meanwhile, whatever the situation is, whatever the person is, whoever is in need of help goes unhelped. They end up going without and this is a phenomenon that is not new to us. It's not uncommon in our world. There's actually a place in the scripture where uh, we see Jesus and his followers dealing with this exact situation. In Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, it says, The, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Think back to Buckhead. I did this, I did that, but I... Haven't done that yet. They reported back all that they had done and taught. Verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So Jesus and his disciples have been doing all kinds of ministry to this point. They've been healing folks. They've been seeing Jesus do all kinds of things and they're just flat exhausted. Man, they're just over it. They, they're just needing a break. They're going to go hit some R&R somewhere. And in verse 32, it says, They went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And so when he went, when he went on shore, he saw a large crowd. This is Jesus. And saw a large crowd and had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep. Without a shepherd. I love Mark's analogy, Mark's imagery there, like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus, weary as he was, began to teach them many things. When it grew late, verse 35, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. In verse 37, Jesus says, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii, which in this day would be 200 days worth of wages, worth of bread, and give him something to eat? 
sarcastically almost. So you, oh sure, you just want to give up almost a year's worth of wages for this? It's great. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And then he instructed them, have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and two fish and Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples and set to set before the people, and he also divided the two fish among them. And everyone ate, in verse 42, everyone ate and was satisfied. And they picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. For many in the room today, if you're joining us online, you're here with us. This might be a familiar text to you, maybe a familiar story of sorts. It might be one that you maybe even grew up reading in, in Bible school or in Sunday school, right? It's Jesus teaching some people, runs out of daylight, decides he wants to feed them. They only have five loaves, two fish. In John's gospel, it's specifically noted um, that, that the, the fish and the bread came from a young boy. Uh, Mark doesn't include that. This is the same instance uh, John is one of the most emotional writers of the Gospels. Historically, you can see it in his writing. John is the one that is careful to include the Hallmark Channel bits right there. You know, anybody else's house running on Hallmark Channel and popcorn right now? Is that just me? Okay. Uh, John's going to include the sappy stuff. Mark is just going to get straight to the point. That's why Mark's Gospel is the only one that doesn't start with a genealogy of Jesus or the birth of Jesus or whatever. He just starts right at the baptism, and now we're off and running, right? Mark's just to the point. So he says, we had five loaves, we had two fish. So Jesus blesses the food, feeds at least 5,000 people. I say at least because apparently they only had the men's group Sunday school rolls that day. <clears throat> we don't know how many it actually was. They just said 5,000 men. Could have been 10,000 people, 15,000. We don't know. But I think, if I'm totally honest with you, there's a moment in this chaos that I think is important to us. And it's easy to miss. Just read right past it. You just get, yeah, sure, Jesus fed some hungry folks. He blessed it. He, they, they, they boxed up the leftovers and all saying how great thou art and moved on, right? Like, it's easy to just say that's the story. But there's a part in this that I want to I look at. Verse 35, we'll go back. It says, when it grew late... They said, this place is deserted. It's already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding villages, buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus says these words, you give them something to eat. You do it. Jesus basically saying, why would we send them away? Like, you guys, you guys do it. It's really great that you've noticed a need, but compassion without action is sympathy. It's good that you've noticed it, but why don't you do something about it? And then they respond, like we said, sarcastically. Well, yeah, sure, we'll just spend over half a year's worth of wages to make sure this thing happens, right? Like, sure, we'll just go into the villages and buy all this stuff as if that was their only option. To this point, chronologically speaking, they've seen Jesus heal a paralytic, cast out demons, raise a dead girl back to life, cast out more demons... And now they're worried about dinner. I wonder if that doesn't touch down on, on you like it does me. I've seen him move mountains. And I'm worried about dinner. 
as if that was their only option. And Jesus is saying, yo, yeah, you know what, you're right. Maybe, maybe we, should, we should just pray about it, right? Oh, wait, that goes to me. I'll, I'll take care of it, right? So there's this moment where the disciples think, look up and they go, man, well, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. And if I'm totally honest, I get it. I get it. I do. Put myself in the shoes of the disciples in this moment. I totally understand where they, where they are. I, I get it. In the moment, it probably made a lot more sense to just send them back into the, the villages, back home, to get whatever's in the crock pot, right? Send them back away. Like that, That's the easier option. It's the safer option. Far less complicated option. But people would have left hungry. And Jesus has never been interested in easy, in safe, and in simple. It's never his mode, because safe people don't change the world. So Jesus says, no, I, we're not going to let them leave without feeding them. He wasn't interested in easy, safe, and simple. And we shouldn't be either. We shouldn't be either. You see, what drove Jesus, it said it right there in the early parts, right? In verse 34, it was the burden that he had for people around him. It said that he saw the crowds, tired and weary as he was, and he had the word compassion on them. That is, he felt something deep within his spirit. He did not see them as a nuisance, as an obligation. He saw them as an opportunity. He didn't see them as an obstacle. He saw them as his people that he had to help. And he wanted to, he was burdened, he was motivated, he was moved by compassion. He saw them, as Mark said, like sheep without a shepherd. Think about that image. Like children without a father. Lost, confused, lonely, desperate, broken. That's what Jesus saw when he saw these people. He saw the need. The lens through which he looked was a lens of love. He felt compassion for these people. And it was because of that compassion that he was willing to do whatever it took, whatever it took, to make sure they got what they needed. Even if it didn't line up with their schedule, even if it didn't quite fit the day's agenda, even if it cost him something, even if it was an inconvenience, even if it interrupted their plans, he was going to do whatever it took to help those people. My wife and I, earlier this month, celebrated four years of marriage. So if any of my buddies are watching at home, I'll take it in cash that we made it that long. Um, Against all odds, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we celebrated four years, and, and as long as time and money allows, we try to get away for a weekend uh, around our anniversary, just a short couple of days away in a, in a city we've never been to before. And this year was Washington, D.C. I had been when I was in like third grade. Catherine had never been before. Uh, and so we, we went through and saw a lot of the museums, a lot of the monuments, the different memorials and things. I'm just really impressed that Washington is as free as it is. Like just about everything over there, you can just walk right in as long as you don't have like, you can get through security, you're fine. 
And one of the museums that we spent some time in that, um, I'll be honest with you, I, I wasn't prepared for what I walked out thinking, was the National Holocaust Museum. For any of you that have been there, have walked through it, it's, it takes a few hours really to get through the whole thing, about five floors, I think, worth of exhibits and artifacts and information and all sorts of videos and, and different elements. And it took us probably three hours or so to get through this thing, somber, incredibly heavy. And we walked through this museum, and they, they, they give you this card when you first get there. And it's an identification card of somebody who actually was in the Holocaust. It helps you personalize what this actually was like. And you walk through this, this exhibit, you walk through this museum, and I came across a, a part, I'm, I'm pretty familiar just because they teach it in history all through school. I was familiar with most of the, the details until I got to this one little section. And I read about this, and I had never heard about this before. So I got home, back to the hotel, and I just started looking it up because I was just so intrigued. In 1938, in July of that year, um, 32 countries came together for what's called the Evian Conference. The Evian Conference was called by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it was primarily to do with the, the refugee crisis that the Holocaust was presenting. That is, people that were trying to get out of Eastern Europe and Germany and all of that, that that uh, wanted to seek asylum or safe haven or shelter. And all these countries didn't really know what to do with it because we're not really built to take on all these people all at one time. And, and so he said, you know what, let's get delegates from all these countries in a room and let's figure out what we can do to try to make this work. So they meet in Evian, which I'm not totally sure what part of, of the, the world that's in, but that's why it was called that. 32 countries and other dignitaries represented um, there. And they come together and it becomes pretty quick uh, apparent pretty quick that many countries were very quick and eager and willing to express sympathy and remorse and regret and emotion for what was going on. They, every dignitary, every delegate would stand up and give the speech from their country, and everybody, to a man, to a woman, uh, expressed these feelings of, man, we, we, we are so sorry for what's happening. We hate this so much. This is so wrong. But almost every single one of them also brought the list of reasons why their country couldn't do anything. Why they couldn't be of as much help as other people expected them to be, right? Everything from employment situation to financial constraints to infrastructure issues to even here in the United States it had to do with immigration laws and policies and Congress unwilling to pass certain provisions to be able to invite these people in. And I'm not interested in the political side of stuff. It's just fascinating that this was the response from 32 different countries. One of the delegates from Australia was quoted saying this, as we have no racial problem, we are not desirous of importing one. T.W. White from the UK said, we have nothing to gain by creating an internal problem to solve an international one. 1938, reflecting the sentiment of most countries, here's 
We, we, we feel a certain way. We hate this, but and we just can't do anything. In fact, oddly enough, the only country that was actually willing to offer help from any, of any substance was the Dominican Republic. They offered to take in 100,000 of these refugees, far surpassing any other country that had far more resources, far more availability, and far more space. The Dominican Republic shows up and says, we'll take 100,000. At the end of the conference, in a press conference, Golda Meir, who would later become the prime minister of Israel, was quoted saying this. She said, I have one desire before I die, and it's to see the day where my people have no further need of expressions of sympathy. In other words, I long to see the day where people don't have to feel sorry for my people anymore because there's nothing to be sorry about. 32 countries coming together, and at the end of it, the phraseology of how we're going to talk about these things, basically they just came out with talking points. Six million Jewish people lost their life as a result of the Holocaust. Another five million estimated that weren't Jewish but had other fatal flaws as determined by the Nazi party would lose their lives as well. 11 million-ish people would be killed. And I'm not trying to equate anything to the Holocaust. But here's what I'm concerned with. One of the things that uh, was on the wall in this museum was a quote from Elie Vassell, who was one of the leading voices around the Holocaust. He actually went through the Holocaust, wrote a book called Night that most uh, libraries and public schools carry. And on the wall, it said this. His quote said, This museum is not meant to be an answer. It's meant to be a question. How did this happen? How did so many ignore so much for so long? Can I just be totally honest with you? Sometimes I wonder if there aren't people who live life without Jesus, never knowing the joy, never experiencing the freedom, and end up experiencing eternity apart from him, who would raise the question, how could so many ignore so much for so long? That is, there's a world out there who's hungry and needs bread. My fear is that many churches in America and across the world today have their own versions of Evian conferences every Sunday morning. They come together. They meet and discuss all of the things happening in the world and all of the things they wish were different. They express good and moral, virtuous things. They say things that sound great. But they also bring all of the reasons why they can't do a lot about it. I mean, we're just so busy right now, I just can't even catch a breath. I can't imagine adding anything else to my plate right now. I, I wish I was more gifted to be able to serve and be able to do something about all that, but I just, it's not, it's not my gifting, right? Or bring it to Williamson County, it's, it's basketball or volleyball season, so we just can't, sorry. 
You bring, you bring all of that in and you talk about all these issues and, and the church comes together and says, man, I wish it could be different in the world. And then it's decided at the end of that Sunday, we should just reconvene next Sunday. We'll rediscuss, we'll rehash, we'll, we'll rethink, we'll talk, we'll, we'll discuss, we'll pray, we'll talk, we'll discuss, we'll pray. And the problem, friends, is you don't plow a field by turning it over with your words. What burdens your heart has to break it. And it has to break it until it moves your hands and your feet. We reconvene next Sunday. We'll figure out what, what it is that we might be able to do. And all the while, the conference happens every Sunday. All the while, there are people experiencing life without Jesus. Desperation. A deep sense of hopelessness. Loneliness. Isolation. Fear. Depression. You don't have to look very far to see the statistics surrounding mental health right now. And I just wonder what Jesus could do with that. I wonder what hope could do with that. I wonder what true joy could do with that. Can I just, this is my prayer. May that Evian conference never show up here. May Clearview Baptist Church in Franklin, Tennessee, never get caught up in the wish we could do something. Sure wish it was different. Look what the world's coming to. Well, Psalm 115 says that the heavens are the Lord's and the earth he's given over to his children. So Michael Jackson may have had it right. We are the world. Look what the world's coming to. It's coming to Jesus. One way or the other. And I'd love to see more people on the bus. Love to see more people with us. Because if what we do in here never makes it out there, then what is the point? Pack it up. Sell the building. We're done. If this just becomes a conference... A, a rotary club of sorts, a get-together where we just come in and talk about how good God's been to us and sit on our rockers and rock our blessed assurance all the way to glory, then sell it today. Because there's people out there who don't know the real Jesus. And Jesus is looking at us and saying, this is on you. If you're not willing to cross the street, you're never going to change the world. He does something here, Jesus does, in verse 41 that I will always believe is calculated and very intentional. Verse 41 says, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed it and he broke the loaves. And it says this, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. So according to Mark in this story, Jesus never handed a piece of bread to anybody. Who did he give it to? To his people, to his leaders, to the people that were ultimately going to become responsible for the launch and the movement called the church. I'll provide it, you share it. I'll provide it, 
that you shared. And friends, if that isn't the gospel message, Jesus has provided it. And we share it. I've done the work. You give it away. That's the gospel message. We talk an awful lot around here about asking God to give us Franklin. Sometimes I wonder, if I'm honest with you, sometimes I wonder if he's not looking out from heaven going, stop talking about it and start taking it. Stop asking for it. I'm handing it to you. It's yours. You go do it. Friends, I don't know another way to say it. And I did not come today fired up because I had hash brown casserole. I came today with a burden. I don't know another way to say it. We've got to do better. We've got to do better. We've got to care more deeply. We've got to live more generously. We have to move more quickly. And we have to love more sacrificially. Why? Because people are hungry. And Jesus is saying, you feed them. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world is sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.